this morning, we are continuing our series on the three churches. We're on the second church. It's the Ephesian church. And if you know your Bible, then you know that there's a book or a letter, we call it an epistle, that's written directly to that church from Paul. But in here, in the book of Acts, that's where we first hear about Paul entering this area, and he discovers that there are a few believers there already. There's some believers, and he's never been to this area. And so this morning, we're going to get to see here a little bit about the history of the starting of the Ephesian church. And then we're also going to dig a little bit deeper into what does that mean for us today. So if you want to turn to your Bibles, Acts, we've been in the book of Acts since Oikos started. So if this is your first Sunday, um, we'll be in the book of Acts for a while yet, but we are getting close. We're about two-thirds of the way through. But by the time we get done, if you listen to every message from the very beginning of Oikos till now, we're almost going to be celebrating two years, you will have a great Bible study in the book of Acts. And it's an important book. One of the reasons why we chose to go into the book of Acts is because as a church plant, we really felt like we needed to pull back and reflect on how God started churches and how he'll start this church and how as a church that is planted as a pregnant church, that we want to plant another church, right? Okay, so we want to do that. So we need to know how does God do it through his people? And the best way to figure that out is by understanding and learning from the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 19, we're in verses 1 through 41. We have a jam-packed Sunday today, so don't be concerned. I'm not going through all 41 verses. We're going to really focus in on the first 20 or so verses and I'm going to give a quick synopsis of the last part because we have a baptism today, which is awesome because the message is actually about baptism. And we also have the Lord's Supper. So we are receiving from the Lord today in great quantities. And I'm excited about that as a family. So Acts chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos, and remember Apollos was another leader that we don't have a whole lot of history about, but he was like, way good. He was so good that people were like, I don't know if I should follow Paul or Apollos or Peter or who should I follow? Apollos was such a great speaker and evidently a good leader that he became prominent, even though we don't have a lot of his backstory. And so Apollos was in Corneth. Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. So there's a real movement going on through Asia Minor right now. Remember, Paul was in Corinth for about 18 months, and he basically kind of turns this over then to Apollos. And then he goes, okay, it's time to move on to the next place. I think the Lord is calling me to another area where the gospel needs to be proclaimed. Little did he know that as he traveled through these interior regions of Asia and then came to the coast where Ephesus was, there were already believers by no effort of his or any effort of any of the other apostles. They're just there. That's a movement. So we'll know that we have started a movement and not just planted a church. When we hear people starting to speak about 
You know, church shouldn't just be about a Sunday experience. Church should be about us growing as a family of believers on mission together. Right? So if you're talking about it, all of a sudden someone else talks about it. In fact, I heard this earlier. Um, this is a, I, can't, I have to leave out names because I didn't ask for permission. So this story is happening right now in our church. So I want to get you guys a little bit excited. That there's someone, I can't tell you who it is, <laughs> but this person who's not a believer is so excited about Oikos, and they only come in every once in a while, but they don't believe in Jesus. They're not so sure about it, but they were out, and they started talking about what was going on here, and what they said was, you know, if I was a believer, this is the church I'd be a part of, and the reason I'd be in part of this church is because they're real. They're doing exactly what I think the Bible says the church should do. There's a little bit of a movement going on. It's a little bit of a movement. I hope that it gives you a little bit of excitement. And maybe it puts a little guilt on those of you that have not said anything about Oikos. <laughs> and what we're experiencing, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. So if you haven't been a part of a missional community, if you haven't gone to Happy Fats if you, and hung out with Jason and Ashley, if you haven't come to a Covenant Family Gathering, we're going to have one coming up here at Joe Stallings' house on the bay. If you haven't come and experienced what life with the church is outside of just Sunday morning, there's a grand invitation for you. This isn't about guilt. It's always going to be an invitation but it's beautiful. In fact, I think that's part of what we miss out sometimes with the gospel. Is that the story that Jesus died and rose again and is coming again is only part of the gospel. The full gospel is that God has a place for you with him in his kingdom. That's the full gospel. The work of Jesus prepares it for what the gospel is, the good news that life forever with God and not as an outsider but welcomed in as part of his family to live together with all those who've been welcomed in. That's the gospel. Sometimes we just stop and go, I believe in Jesus. Well, the demons do that. I know that was, I was talking about invitation. I just had to stick that in there. God is calling us to a much bigger and bolder and wonderful life. And that's your invitation from your pastor. For those of you that go, well, you're not really my pastor. Well, I am today. To come and join life with us. When you receive an invitation to our home, to the Lytle home, we do that not just because we think we should do that to plant a church. We do that because we want to learn about you. Because we want to figure out how God is calling you into the family as well. That's a little side note. But it's very important when you talk about what a movement really is. And the more each of us imitate this, the more the movement will grow. Verse 2. 
You guys are really going, this is going to take forever, but it won't. I promise. Verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience? I could kind of imagine myself asking this question. Like, hmm, you haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. I think there might be an issue. So what baptism did you experience, he asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. So it's like, basically, that's good. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. Verse 5, as soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. No hesitation. There was a real hunger in these early believers. They didn't even know the full story. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit. They didn't know about baptism. They didn't have all their doctrine right. They probably didn't even read the scroll of Isaiah yet. They were just excited that this Jesus had given them a new life. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So it wasn't a big group. But it was this group that would later establish the Ephesian church. And it was this group that Paul would invest his time in so that it could grow. So Holy Spirit, that's the first thing, right? Sometimes we forget that we need to learn about who the Holy Spirit is. And oftentimes we focus a lot of our Trinitarian theology on who? Jesus. So the Christian church focuses most of their Trinitarian theology on Jesus. And that's good. I love Jesus. You love Jesus? It's good. The world, I would say, focuses most of their Trinitarian theology on who? God, the Father. Because that can be a little bit more painted general, right? It comes back to the question that once you believe in Jesus, you have to ask the question, what do I do with Jesus? Jesus who claims to be the Son of God. Jesus who says, I'm both man and God. Jesus who says, I died on the cross for you, for your sins, and it's through my blood that you'll have life. Jesus who said, if you do not pick up your cross, you cannot follow me. What do you do with Jesus? That's why we focus a lot of time, because you have to always ask questions. As soon as you read the Gospels, you got to go, oh, Jesus, <laughs> here you go again. What are you inviting me into? Because I'm scared, but you keep telling me I'm with you. I'll be with you always. But the Holy Spirit kind of gets left out. So this morning, we're going to just spend a short a bit, bit of time about who the Holy Spirit is. He's the third person in the Trinity. So the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, 
right? Jesus Christ, I believe in Jesus, right? And then I believe in the Holy Spirit. So we are a creedal church. What does that mean? You probably wonder, how come we don't say the creed all the time? Because we don't. <laughs> um, I believe that the creed should be taught, and we do that. We'll do that within our missional communities. But I do think it's at this point in time in our culture, anyone can Google the Apostles' Creed and you can look at it. You don't have to just have it supplied to you on a weekly basis in worship. So I would strongly suggest that if you have a catechism or something in your house, if you don't, and you're probably, some of you may be going, I have no idea what he's talking about. That's okay. That's why we are family together. Those are good questions to ask. Hey, Pastor Aaron, where can I find the Apostles' Creed? Where can I find the Nicene Creed? Where can I find the Athanasian Creed? So I can learn about the early church. They use creeds in the early church because they're illiterate. Most of the people couldn't read. And so they had statements of faith that they could memorize and say together on a continuous basis. So that they could remember that we believe not in a general God, that we don't believe just in Jesus, that we believe in a trinity that includes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we get God the Holy Spirit is that he is true God. In the Old Testament, he's described in Hebrew as Ruach, which I think is a cool name. Ruach is wind in Hebrew. Numa is breath or wind in Greek. And if you see Numa or Ruach, and it's describing an activity of God, it's describing the Holy Spirit. So we see the Holy Spirit in existence from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation. He's always there. Just like God the Son is there in the Old Testament as a coming Messiah, all the way into the New Testament revealed as Jesus. And God the Father is from the very beginning all the way to the end when he comes to judge both the living and the dead. So the Holy Spirit is given to us through Jesus as our holy and awesome counselor. He speaks to us. It's that internal nudging. It's something that the church often doesn't talk about because we can't contain it. See, we can contain Jesus a little bit, or we think we can, because we got his life, and he did this, 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 and this. But the Holy Spirit is untamable. He moves like the wind, and he pushes you and reveals things in your life that maybe you don't want revealed. He's the whisper of God in your ear. He dwells in you, even when you don't want him there. Because in the act of baptism, we're promised the Holy Spirit. And the words of Jesus that I'll never leave you or forsake you, that promise is fulfilled in the Holy Spirit as he dwells 
in us. The Holy Spirit is powerful. He's the living and breathing Spirit of God who's working in us today. And in a few minutes, we'll be working in a baptism. And that's why we call them sacred acts, sacraments, because the Spirit works in them. And He is holy. He's set apart. So what do we talk, what do we teach about baptism? How many of you, if someone said, tell me about baptism, would feel comfortable in teaching them about baptism? <laughs> All right, I've got three people, and that's why we're going to talk about baptism. You should always be ready to teach about baptism. Remember, I just talked about the power of the Holy Spirit, and in baptism, that's exactly what happens. The Spirit writes on your heart. And when I describe it to kids, I talk about a Sharpie marker, like a super powerful Sharpie marker that you can't erase, that he writes his name on your heart. And no matter what you do, no one can take that away from you. It's an identity given to you. From that moment of your baptism, you are a son or daughter of the living God. Now, as a son or daughter, you're always invited to be with the Father. Always invited. But we know that many times children walk away. I was having a conversation this morning, and I said, as parents, we have the charge to always love our children and to invite them into that love. But they don't have to love us. They have a choice. But we get to experience what that looks like, to always invite our children into relationship with us, and we are charged to love them, no matter what. And I think it's in those times that we get to experience a little bit of the pain of the father. Because in the moment that our child says, I hate you, and you have that tinge that runs down your spine, and all you want to do is just say, please love me. We get experience what the Father in heaven experiences with us on a daily basis. That he's inviting us into life with him. And we often reject it. So in baptism, the Holy Spirit writes upon the heart of the child, identifies them as a child of God, and then promises makes a covenant with them that no matter where they go, he will always be with them. He'll always be giving that invitation to come home. And even if they would stray far away from his kingdom, he will whisper to them as the pneuma in their life, come home. Come back to the Father. I love you. I will never forget you.
forget your past and start today with me. That's what the Holy Spirit does in baptism. He cleanses us and he prepares us to enter his kingdom forever. Now, what happens here in the whole idea of pouring the Holy Spirit out upon the people? So this happens four times in the book of Acts. The first time it happened, it was over the Jews. The next, it was over the God-fears in Cornelius' household. Do you remember that with Peter? The next time, it was with the Samaritans. And the final time was with the Gentiles in Ephesus. So what happens with the pouring out of the Spirit is that what is happening for the church is that each of these groups needed to be confirmed that they were truly part of God's family. So it first happened with the Jews. And then the group, the God-fears who weren't really Jews, but they kind of followed the Jewish ways, then got confirmed as part of the family as well. And then it happened with the Samaritans who were seen as dirty dogs. But the pouring of the Holy Spirit gave them a new identity and said, no, they have equal status in my kingdom as well. And then it happens here with the Gentiles, those who are seen as far outside the kingdom. On this day, on the pouring of the Holy Spirit, we're told, no, you have an identity too in the kingdom. Equal status with everybody else. Anyone who's baptized in my name has equal status in my kingdom. Verse 8, then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way or this movement of people following Jesus. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So he follows the same procedure that he did in Corinth. Remember, he was in the synagogue. Then he went next door to the leader of the synagogue and he started the church. Here in Ephesus, he does the same thing. He preaches boldly about Jesus. And people had to ask a question, what do we do with him? A few of them said, we want Jesus. We want this life. And they followed him, probably just down the street. And this guy was some guy of influence. He owned a building. He was a teacher of philosophy or rhetoric. And they welcomed Tyrannus, welcomed them into his house. And a few of the believers came with them. So that Paul, during kind of like the off hours of this business, of teaching the school, so maybe at 5 o'clock at night or early, early in the morning, he could teach about God. Verse 11, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had 
merely touched his skin were placed on sick people. They were healed of their diseases, and evil spirits were expelled. There were some incredible things happening in Ephesus. Remember, it started with 12, then maybe a few others were joined in, maybe 30 people. Paul kept on preaching, and then they started taking these handkerchiefs that he had touched. And you can imagine a family taking this handkerchief, and they were so filled with hope that just by this handkerchief touching this ambassador, this prophet probably in their terminology of God, perhaps their loved one would be healed. So they take it and they place it on their loved one and they're healed. Now that's crazy stuff, right? Guess what? That's when you can't contain the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit does what he wills as a wind of God, as a sent one of God into a community so that they would experience, what do they experience? His kingdom. We know this from the words of Jesus himself in Luke 11, verse 20. He says, but if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. We know from the words of Jesus that the moment that demons are cast out from people is the moment that his kingdom has arrived. But we get kind of scared about that, right? Because that seems kind of like hocus pocus. But God's power is real. And there's a real thing going on between the power of darkness and the power of God. And we better not forget it. Or we too may be overcome by it. Or we may misuse it as the people in Ephesus did. Verse 13. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a leading priest, were doing this. But one time when they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and, and battered. This power that we're fighting against is real. And it's powerful. Satan is going to use every ounce of his power because he's looking for a win. And every time someone turns from Jesus, Satan wins. And he doesn't care. He knows he can't win the full victory. He's not stupid. He already knows that that's done. But he knows that he can win little battles. And I'm telling you, the battle is for you. And he will use every ounce of his power to have one person turn from Jesus because that's a win in his book. And if it's demonic presence, he'll use that. If it's helping you look at everything but Jesus, he'll use that. He'll use whatever authority he's been given to try to make you turn away from Jesus. 
And what he used in the Ephesian church is he used the power of Jesus. That a few people, even a Jewish priest, decided that they would manipulate this power for their own well-being. So rather than helping people experience the kingdom of God, they kind of were like modern-day TV evangelists who were healing people only for recognition of themselves. You never see Jesus broadcasting a healing and telling everyone, hey, look at me. Or send in $40 and this could happen for you. But this is what these guys were doing. They wanted a recognition for themselves. They weren't doing it for Jesus because they didn't even have a, a relationship with him. They didn't even know who he was. And even though we need to take the power of Satan seriously, and we shouldn't manipulate it, we shouldn't jump into a sense of experiencing magic, messing, you know, messing around with Ouija boards and messing around with stuff that we know is not good and is not from Jesus are the exact things that Satan wants us to do so that for just a moment we could turn and maybe forget who Jesus was. For a moment we could put our trust in something other than Jesus because then he can start reeling in because we've taken the bait until we've lost our faith. Until we forget that God has an invitation for us that he's written his name on our heart, that he loves us, that he's not ashamed of us. Verse 17, the story of what happened spread quickly through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn or a good fear descended on the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. So even in this messed up way of manipulating the power, God used it so that people would see that Jesus is a force to be reckoned with. Not to be feared, but to be embraced because he loves you. And there's real life with him. Verse 18, many who believed or became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. So for Ephesus, Depending on magic was a big thing. Their temple was filled with these kind of books because they looked for a way to heal their people, and the way to heal their people was through the use of magical arts. And these books were expensive. Books in the ancient world were always expensive. But in particular, these, because they had great worth because people put their trust in them. They put their faith in them. 
as soon as they saw that they were wrong, they repented, and then they took their books and they burned them, the thing that they trusted in. So what obstacle or what book do you have in your life right now that you're trusting in? That perhaps the Lord is asking you to respond just like the Ephesians who first believed. What is it, what obstacle in your faith is holding you back from experiencing life from Jesus? Is it your schedule? Is it your, we're just coming off summer. Is it your, your relaxed time? That Jesus just can't fit in that relaxed time? Come on. Is it, we kind of do that, don't we? Silo away our life. So when I'm on relaxed time, I just don't do anything with Jesus. Because I got to rest, I'm tired. Is it your finances? Oh, Lord, don't talk to me about my finances. That's untouchable. What is it? I just found it awesome that these people embraced Jesus so fully that the moment that they realized that they were wrong, they turned to God and they said, we're sorry. I have put this between me and you. And for them, it was an object, a book of incantation. But they were willing to take this book that probably was at least a year's salary and throw it in the fire and let it burn so that they would no longer have this book between them and Jesus. What if we were so bold? What if you have something that's an obstacle between you and Jesus and it costs $10,000, would you be willing to throw it away? What if you had an obstacle between you and Jesus, and it was a year's worth of salary, and for some of you that might be $100,000, would you be willing to throw it away so that you could have life with Jesus? That's what they did. So what is the main reason why a movement doesn't start? because people won't take a risk. They depended everything, their life depended on these incantation books. Where does your life depend on? Where is it resting? If, if you're resting with Jesus, awesome. If you're kind of going, well, I rest with Jesus on Mondays and Tuesdays, but on Wednesdays is my drinking day with my buddies. And Jesus doesn't have a part in that day. Or I, I rest with Jesus on most of my time, but there's a couple times where, you know what? I just have to be, I got to go against what I am as a Christian. What is it? And I know it's a little uncomfortable because you're trying to race through your mind and you may be thinking, man, Actually, there's not like one book. There might be a library between me and Jesus. So today, I would ask you to focus in on one. Maybe the biggest book 
maybe the one that's worth the most to you, that's between you and Jesus. And slowly take that off the shelf today and rest it in your hands. And ask yourself, is this worth more? Do I believe this will bring me more than the one who died and rose again for me? Do I believe that this will bring me more joy and contentment than if I threw it away and I embrace the one who's waiting for me, who sent a spirit, Ruach, to whisper into your ear and say, you are God's. He who has formed you and made you and knit you together in the womb of your mother knows you and loves you. Is this worth more than life with him? For those in Ephesus, it was not. If we want to be a church that's a movement, we're going to have to take a risk. We're going to have to say, it's time for me to be baptized if I haven't been baptized, even though it seems kind of scary. We're going to have to take a risk with our finances and say, it's time for me to be generous, even though I've got bills to pay. We're going to have to take a risk with our marriages and say, it's time to pray with my wife. Even though I've never done that before. We're going to have to take a risk with our relationships and say, it's time for me to tell them about the one who loves me and loves them. Even if they may laugh at me. even if I lose my job, even if I lose my business, even if I lose something that I've been holding on to that's been in between me and Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chapter 19 in the book of Acts the starting of the Ephesian church, the risks that the people took, the repentance that the people had, the change of life that they embraced. But mostly, Lord, for your love that has no boundaries, for your spirit who has no boundaries, who moves through us even when we are not worth moving through. Who moves through people who we think would never embrace you. Who whispers those words of invitation into our lives and into the lives of those we're connected with when we simply embrace you. Lord, may we be people who are not fearful of the things of this world, who are not fearful of Satan, but we respect his power, but we know that your power, your spirit, is greater. May we be moved by the spirit this day, and until you come again, 
to embrace where you would lead us, to jump where no one else has jumped, to take a risk even when we're, we're not sure we can do it. To love those who we think we can't give love to. Just so that your spirit can move through us and produce change. In your name we pray. Amen.